Open up your Bibles to Genesis 16. What we just witnessed here was family. We witnessed here in the context of like each of these where some of them are just two or three members of the family and over at the Newtons they got five in their family. And families come in all stages and flavors of health, of appropriateness, of function. We've begun to look at the family of Abraham lately. And Abraham is only the tip of the iceberg to families that came after him that were dysfunctional. Today in our text, Abraham decides to take a servant girl in his family and to make her become the mother of the heir that God had promised. And in that dysfunction, in doing things that way, and choosing to do things separate from how God did them, he created more dysfunction. Abraham's son will follow in Abraham's footsteps with dysfunction. You're going to see throughout the book of Genesis a thread of deceit, of lying, of manipulation, and it started with the guy, the father of all those children. It goes on, you read throughout the rest of the, New, of the Old Testament, it goes on, you know, you, Judah stands out as being just another dysfunctional dude, man. David shows up, he's called the, the man after God's own heart, and he is one dysfunctional dude. And if any family had family issues, it was David's family, just following in the footsteps. And that dysfunction, all that stuff that happened in the life of Abraham... And Sarah has followed itself, doggone it, right into this room. Right into this room today. Where there are families in this room that are barely together. There are families in this room that are pieced together from multiple families. There are families in this room that are relatively healthy. And there are folks in this room that their family is a lot of other people that aren't their family. And all that's because the effect of sin in our lives, the effect of sin in Abraham's life, the effect of sin in Adam's life, it continues to unroll and unravel into the lives of people all the way down to today. And it's just going to keep on rolling down that hill until Jesus comes back. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. And we will continue to have difficult circumstances in families as long as we continue to sin and nobody's escaped that net yet, have they? This morning, church, we witnessed like the setting aside of families, Nate, Brianna, and their three, and Jason, and, and Veronica, and Jonathan, and Emily, and Hope. And we've committed to them in a variety of ways, really. I mean, the way we help people goes from raking their leaves to wiping their 
bottoms to help him pay rent, to just being there and listening to them, whatever it may be. It looks like a lot of different things when the church family steps in to help raise our families. I got to tell you something. I praise the Lord for being a church. I don't know how anybody raises teenagers if they're not in a local church. Because I found out more things that have happened in my family that I didn't know through all of y'all. <laughs> Sorry, son. Yeah, so. Church, Crossing, you have done some pretty amazing stuff in loving people. In the past two years, we're seeing things happen in people's lives and the way you're responding to them with love and compassion and grace. And this morning is only one more landmark in that journey. As we love these families up here, and we help them to continue to grow, and we commit to each other to raise those children in the faith, and then we do that with hope as well. Hope for a long time has been trying to say, how do I say to the church family how I got to where I'm at? And today, in working out what we wanted to say today, that was how it came out today for her. And really what it's all about is it's more of a showcase of God's grace, of God's redemption, and not because everything's right, not because everything's perfect, because it's far from it. But we believe God's promises that he redeems all things. And he redeems them for his purposes. And sometimes we don't like the way he does it. Sometimes we don't understand the way he does it. But he's going to be doing it to people who are yielded to him. And so our prayer for for Nate and Brianna, for Veronica and Jason, for Jonathan and Emily, is we're praying for them to be yielded to God's spirit, for his compassion and for his grace to be on them so that they're teachable as they raise their own children. So they listen to the voices of others who have come up behind them, who have come and went on before them, who have done this before, and speak into their lives. And that's the way we're supposed to be as a church. And so I'm grateful to be a part of Crossing. I'm grateful to have those young couples and all their family today in the house. And I'm looking forward to growing my family alongside of your family. Not in perfection at all. Not in ever doing it right at all. But walking along with each other in grace when we do it wrong, walking along with each other when our kids do it wrong, and we watch them flail and suffer and make mistakes. But in the church body, in a family like this, we do that with much more grace and ease than if we weren't standing together as the body of Christ. So, this morning, I want to talk about someone who you can even see in some situations in our own lives. Anyone know who Rosie Ruiz is? Anyone know who Rosie Ruiz is? Yeah, I mean, you can guess what she does, right? She's a runner, that's right. Actually, she's not really a runner. She was a competitor in the 1980 Boston Marathon. Ruiz was declared the winner of the Boston Marathon female category with a time of 2 minutes, 31 seconds, 2, two hours, 31 minutes, 57 seconds. She was blinding fast. That's why she looks that way. It it was amazing. You had to be there to see it. And as you can guess, even at the time I should have read, 
Her time would have been the fastest female time in Boston Marathon history, and it would have been the third fastest female time ever in a marathon. But you notice that I did not call her a runner. I called her a competitor because she was a competitor, which is a very different thing from being a runner because after investigation was turned out, it found out that she jumped onto the course at a half a mile before the finish line and finished first. That's not uncommon, actually. In 1904, the Olympic marathon, one runner used a car to compete. We won't say he ran. He used a car to compete in the marathon. In 2010, the Chicago Tribune reported that in the 2009 Chicago Marathon, 252 runners were disqualified for missing two or more checkpoints. That's a lot of people who didn't run, isn't it? In 2005, the Marine Corps Marathon disqualified 350 runners for not competing appropriately. In the case of Rosie Ruiz, this doesn't seem to be an isolated incident, unfortunately. She was also found to have cheated in the New York Marathon to have qualified her for the Boston Marathon. They just found one out after the other. In 1982, two years after she competed... She was arrested for embezzling $60,000 from a company. And later on, she moved to South Florida, where she was arrested in 1983 for involvement in a cocaine deal. All the way up until 2000, in an interview, she still adamantly said that she ran 26.2 miles of the Boston Marathon. By the way, as they continued to do investigation, they, did, they learned that much of the 26.2 miles that she said she ran... She did it on the Boston subway. She did it on the Boston subway. There you go. That's how she competed in the Boston Marathon. I've got to say, I think the subway is a distinct advantage over the rest of the runners. <laughs> Cutting corners. Shortcuts. These are natural tendencies for men and women, are they not? The definition of a shortcut is a faster way of accomplishing something or getting somewhere. And that is exactly what we find happening in the text in Genesis 16 today. Let me just walk us through it a little bit and kind of give us the, the details of it. So here we are, Genesis 16:1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's the running thread of Abram's life for decades. A promise of a child and still no child. A promise of a child and still no child. Chapter 15, what were we talking about? No children yet. Here we are in chapter 16, what are we talking about? No children yet. So Sarah said to Abraham, let's take a shortcut. I heard there's a subway system to fertility. Interesting, she says here, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go to my handmaid and obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. You know what? That same exact phrase, you know where that's found in Genesis? Listen to the voice of? Genesis 3, when Adam listened to the voice of Eve. Now, that's not a female-male issue. Don't even go there with me, all right? It's just an issue of when we are not sure we still want to obey and someone comes and whispers in our ear, that is when we so often step outside of our lane. 
And so here we are in Genesis 16, and she comes and, and he listens to her voice. And so Abram, he had lived in Canaan for quite a while, verse 3, he takes, um, he takes her his handmaid named Hagar. She sounds like a Viking to me. She's not. Hagar is actually Egyptian. Hagar is Egyptian. And he, he has sex with her, she conceives, and immediately Hagar despises Sarai. Verse 4. You can go on down through here, and now there's some problems, and Sarah's mad at Abraham. Look what you've done. This woman hates me now. This is all your fault. And Abraham says, it's my fault. How is it my fault? It was your idea. You take her now. She's your responsibility. And in the midst of all this, this woman who is the victim in this situation, she runs away. God finds her in the desert, and he says, don't go away. Don't go away. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. And you're going to have, he's going to be the father of nations. Go back. Submit yourself to her authority. It won't be easy. Go back and submit yourself to her authority. And wait. And wait. In verse 15, when Abram was concerned about an heir, God came and encouraged him. In verse 16, when the same concern is there, this ongoing problem is here, and Abraham takes things differently. In chapter 12, do you remember in chapter 12, um, they arrive in Canaan, and they get there, and there's a famine in the land. And so they go, well, there's no food here at all. So the right thing must be to do is to go someplace where there's food. So let's pack up all the family and like the Beverly Hillbillies, just load it all on the truck and go down to Egypt land. And that didn't go well, did it? God says, that's not where I want you. That's not how I'm going to provide for you. I'm not going to provide through you through another king, another nation, another land. That's not how we're going to do this. Go home. Go back. I'm going to take care of you where I promised to you. It's really interesting that here we are in chapter 16 and Abram and Sarah are in the same situation. Except for this is not a famine of food. This is a famine of fertility. Instead of there not being any food, there's no baby. And they do the same thing they did in chapter 12. They go to Egypt. But it's not the nation of Egypt this time. It's a young Egyptian woman. And instead of looking for food, they go looking for a child, an heir. Note that in verse 2, it says, God has prevented me from having children. And then they say, Sarah says, so let's help God. Let's do what he hasn't done yet. Now, folks, anytime we try and help God, it is just like this little guy here. He's like going, I'll make dinner. I can do it. Anytime we try and help God, that is exactly what we're doing. We are going to make a mess of things. And that is exactly what happens in Abraham and Sarah's life. They went to Egypt one time before, and they didn't learn their lesson. So here they are doing it all over again. They're going to go to Egypt to fix their problem. And Egypt is in the form of a young Egyptian woman who's living in their home, and he goes, let's go there. 
For a woman to not bear a child in this day and time was catastrophic. To have a large number of children was considered the mark of success. It wasn't so much riches and everything. It was having lots of babies. That was the mark of success. So you can imagine if that's the metrics, if that's the way you measure value, to have no children was a humiliating failure in their world. So this practice of taking a servant and bearing children by them was an accepted and common practice. But even though it was socially accepted practice, it was a shortcut. Abraham and Sarah were taking the Boston subway instead of following the course. God had given them a God-sized dream to have an heir at their very, very old age. And he would take that baby born out of season and he would bless that baby. But they were tired of waiting. So they tried to accomplish a God-sized dream all on their own effort. And you think about this. They couldn't make a baby themselves. And that's exactly what they wanted. So they couldn't even do it themselves. They had to get some young woman to step in and fulfill a dream. God didn't do it. They couldn't do it. And so there's a servant girl. That's how we're going to do it. And what did the result, what was the result of this? What happened when they took matters in their own hands and didn't wait on God? Well, it was a lot like that little kid in the kitchen a moment ago on that other slide. Immediately, there's relational tension. Immediately. Hagar despises Sarah. Sarah blames Abram. Sarah despises Hagar. Abram gets passive the way that men do too much of the time. Can I get an amen? Abram gets passive. And he fails to lead. He takes suggestions that are not good. He had already done that to get him into the situation. And still, instead of failing to lead, he continues to be passive and lets the situation continue to unravel. And in doing so, he leaves Hagar in a terrible situation, suffering. And pay attention, this is the reboot from Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin, and they immediately begin to do what? Blame shift, point fingers. It wasn't me, it was him. It wasn't him, it was her. It wasn't either of us, it was the snake. And that is what sin does to relationships. We don't naturally look at ourselves or our sin. We immediately begin to look at ourselves as being the victim or the innocent one. Or at the very least, the one that didn't do as anything as bad as the other guy. But this is not the only fallout from this shortcut. Ishmael, the servant son of Abraham, or of Abram, He's promised by God to be the father of nations. And later on in Genesis 37, we read that when the brothers take Joseph and they want to put him up for sale, or they want to get rid of him, or they they think about killing him, they don't quite have the nerve to kill him, so let's just sell him. And who comes along? Ishmaelite traders. Distant cousins. Ishmaelite traders come along. And they sell Joseph to these traders. But that's not the end of it. The Islamic tradition says that Abram bought Ishmael and Hagar to Mecca. And while probably not all Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, most are. And so just the way that Hagar despised Sarah, Sarah's descendants despise Hagar's descendants despise Sarah's descendants till this day. 
So just the way that Hagar hated Sarah when all that had happened, to this day, the descendants of Abraham, of descendants of Isaac, Abraham, and Ishmael continued to despise each other. You saw it in the news this week, the perfect example of the Gaza riots and the IDF um, retaliation to it. That is, that is a fallout of Ishmael and cutting a corner and taking a shortcut. And remember, you know, as you watch all this unfold, remember that what you're seeing right there is found right here in Genesis 16. And if someone says, well, the Bible's still not really true, it still really doesn't affect today, just walk them back there and just say, hmm, this is where it's true right here. God promised these people a land. He also said these other people are going to be nations. They would have lands also, and they're fighting over that land today, and they still despise each other. Abraham had been given a promise by God for an heir. He had also been given a promise for a land. But in this case, in this chapter, Abraham had listened to someone he loved and cared for, but was not seeking the best that God had to promise. You know, you pay attention to that and you think about that. We think that the people we really need to be careful of so often are the people outside the house, but that we in our own homes, we create really bad situations all the time. Moms and dads sit across the kitchen table. They sit across the living room table. They go to sleep at night, falling asleep next to each other, devising terrible ways of fixing problems in their home or their relationships. One of those ways that they do that is they sit there and agree with each other and say, we'll never make it work. We should just leave. We should just divorce. A bad idea to be saying to each other because there's relationships in this room that went there and God redeemed and brought back. All kinds of bad ideas come from inside our homes. And so we don't just sit and listen to each other. We still have to bring it back before God and ask for him and see what he's doing, see where he's leading us. Sarah comes to Abram and suggests this culturally appropriate solution. There was nothing wrong at all with what she says. She says, go have a child by that woman. It happens all the time. It's what we do. And it was. And yet, what was culturally appropriate was not God's plan for this family. That wasn't his way. And so you see, when we cut corners and when we take a shortcut, wherever the outcome of that short takes us leaves you and I taking the credit for the result. Did you get that? Because I said it kind of backwards, didn't I? So this is what I meant. Let's just say it all over again, all right? Go backwards to that. This is what happens. When you and I take shortcuts on things, when we say, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of waiting. We can just take care of this situation just like this. No one in the church is going to say we're wrong because it happens all the time. It's culturally appropriate. But what is culturally appropriate might not be God's plan for you. It might not be God's plan for you. And when you take that shortcut, all of a sudden what you've done is said, okay, look, God promised us a son and he didn't give us one, so what we did was we took Hagar and now we got a baby. What did I just say? I just said we got a baby. I just said we found a solution to God's problem because God couldn't handle it. He needed help from me. 
well, that, he's a bad God then if he needs my help. He is a pitiful God if he needs my help. And I know most of y'all too. He's pitiful if he needs any of y'all's help. Y'all should have said amen. That should have been a hearty amen right there. Anytime we take a shortcut, we just created a scenario where we go, you know what? I helped God. I found a solution. I was waiting on a baby, and he didn't give us one, so we found a solution. We have this girl, Hagar, and we now have a son. His name is Ishmael. There we are. God, we did that. We did that, God. Aren't you proud of us, God? And he's like going, that's not my plan. Because, you see, it goes, it's, this, it's that thing again. We want to be in the story. We want to be in the picture. We want to find ourselves there. And God's like going, no, this is the story. I'm going to take this old woman and this old man, and people are going to say, you're crazy if you think you're going to have a baby. And I'm going to give him a baby. God is in the business of having a guy starting to build a boat for a storm that's going to come. And people are walking by him for years like going, what are you doing, Noah? God told me to build a boat. And people are going, that man is crazy. And then it started to rain. And people said, yeah, he's not crazy after all. And so all those people who said that Abraham and Sarah were crazy for waiting on a baby, what do you think they heard? What do you think they did when they heard a screaming infant in Abraham's tent? Hmm. He's not crazy. That God made a promise to him and he kept it. You see... Shortcuts are this, are expedient. They are pragmatic, they, meaning that they get things done. The goal uh, is to get there with, you know, with, with a, the goal of a shortcut is to get there with no regard of following the rules or doing things the best or right way. You kind of get that? A shortcut is like going, I don't have to go that way. I can cut across this corner. I can go across this field. I can turn here and when I, I'll get there sooner, I'll get there faster. Isn't the point, isn't the goal to get there? Shortcuts, in the world of someone who takes shortcuts, the subway is always the acceptable way to run a marathon. Always. But the point of running the course of the race, what's the point of running the course of the race instead of taking the shortcut? Why run the whole race? Why run the same route that everyone else is? Is the goal to finish the fin- cross the finish line? If that's the case, then what does it matter how I get there? Is the goal to have a son, an heir? then what does it matter how I get that son? He's a son. He's mine. He gets it all. You see, it's in this area of our deepest desires. It's in the things that really matter to us most when Satan begins to creep in and begins to make some kind of suggestion about how to, finish the cross, how to cross the finish line quicker. How to gain an heir sooner. 
And his suggestions never follow the course that God has laid out for us. He says, eat from the tree. Eat from the tree. God didn't really mean what he said. Eat from the tree. He said to Christ, turn these stones into bread. You know, you, know, you might starve out here, dude. Have you ever been out here before? You're going to starve out here if you don't eat pretty soon. And that wouldn't help God's plan at all if you just died before you accomplished your goal here, right? So turn those stones into bread. You know you need to. Throw yourself off this building. You know the angels have given charge of you. You know you, and you know what? Think about this, man. You came in that little town of Bethlehem, and nobody knew you arrived, and you have been silent for 30 years, and like, so you really need a little pizzazz here. You need a little oomph here. You need some spotlights. You need like a few minutes on 60 Minutes. You know, you need some time on TMZ. So like, throw yourself off of here. Let those angels come and catch you. And then people go, whoa, catch the guy who just had angels catch him off the building. Now let's go and listen to what he has to say. And he keeps doing that. He keeps suggesting shortcuts to us. But none of the shortcuts are God's plan. And Jesus chose obedience over a shortcut. And he chose to run the race the entire course, all even though the finish line was the cross. And some of us are sitting here thinking of a shortcut we've already taken. And we're wondering how we get out of it. Some of us are sitting here, and we've already been thinking about a shortcut. We've already been thinking about a shortcut. And we're saying, this seems to be the only way out. This seems to be the only way out. And what you need to be really worried about, is it worth it to wait? Why is doing the right thing worth it? Why? The short answer is this. (laughs) And you want to know something? It's because obeying God is always worth it. That's the short answer, but that's not the easy answer. Because, you see, running 26.2 miles is not easy. Obeying God is not easy. But when you run the course and you run all the miles, you cross the finish line, and you really cross the finish line. When you obey the Lord and doing what He's called you to do, like, you've really obeyed him you've come into a place where all of a sudden you can say i didn't do this he did this you come in this place where you can say god is drawing attention to himself because that's the other part of that's the other reason why it's worth waiting it's because god gets the glory and he gets the reputation for it and we don't and so christian if you're in this for your own glory and reputation you've got some issues you've got a problem that you need to deal with with the lord Because we are called to lay down our life and to give him all the honor and all the glory and all the reputation. And so he is all about bringing us to our lowest points so that he can pick us back up again. All you new mommies and daddies, you're going to learn that in a real heartbeat. <clears throat> Isn't that true? Wow, finally got an amen out of y'all. That was amazing. 
That was all the grandparents in the room, amening, yeah? <laughs> you see, some of us would do anything to see an answer to an experience or a circumstance you're in right now. Some of us would do anything. And, you've, and you're thinking about it. You're thinking like, what can I do to make this stop, to change this, to make things be different? What can I do? Uh, and you're saying, if I were to sit down with you, I'd say, tell me, what would you do? And you say, I will do anything at all to make this better. Well, you want to know something? More often than not, the answer to that is, would you be willing to wait on God? Are you willing to go that far? Are you willing to do that? You see, that's where Abraham and Sarah were. They were in a situation where they're like going, I've waited decades for this baby, and I still got nothing to show for it. And they came to a place one day when Sarah woke up and she says to Abram, Hey, man, like, we have that woman. She's yours. Go make a baby. Let's get an heir. Let's move on. The difference between Ishmael and Isaac was waiting. Was waiting. The difference between whatever you're pondering about cutting a corner and taking a shortcut and what God wants you to do is waiting. Just obeying. Just waiting. If you're here this morning and you took a shortcut already and you're living with those consequences, you're living with years a brokenness chilling behind you? This is your good word. He redeems that. He redeems that. This week, I watched a 27-year broken relationship be healed. Not because someone else took, and it happened because of a shortcut. It got healed because of waiting. Who among us in this room have something that you would take a shortcut for to try and get it fixed? Who among us in this room? is trying to figure out, how do I fix this? I believe the answer to that is waiting on God. He'll come in and he'll fix it, and he might not fix it the way you want him to. You know, he might not restore all your relationships this week, this year. He might not make life easy for you. But he will be in the business of redeeming ever so slowly sometimes, the brokenness that you left in the past when you took that shortcut. And then just final thing about that shortcut thing, if you're contemplating a shortcut, just know this, you're stepping into the world of hurt. You're stepping into quicksand. 
you're stepping into you know to trouble and if you choose to go there you will find yourself suffering at the expense of your own efforts instead of waiting on the Lord my encouragement to all of us is to do that is just to wait matter of fact you know, you think about it, those of us who are in the Lord, those of us who have had the promise of Christ's return, that's where we are today, is waiting on his return, isn't it? You see, this, 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 this thing about waiting on God is not just for Abram and Sarah. It's not just for us with these particular instances. That's what the people of God are called to in this day and time, is waiting for his return. And in his return, that demand for obedience is the same for these two people in the Bible as it is for you and I, that as we wait for his return, we are still to obey and not cut corners and not grow weary. And those of us, any of us who wait, we will find him to be wonderful in that waiting, that he met our needs, that he supplied in a way that we cannot understand, and that we will not talk about what we've done, but we will talk about what he's done in our lives. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the example, again, of Abram and Sarah. They continue to be instructive to us. They continue to provide us with great examples, like in chapter 15, and with not-so-great examples, like in chapter 16, and their lives will continue to instruct us as we, when we go through the passages. And now, Father, may we find ourselves as learning from them, and may we find ourselves as learning of you as we wait and we seek you. And we look to you to satisfy us as we wait. As we look to you to be our all in all as they're, in this case with Abram and Sarah, they had to wait and let you satisfy them and, and you had to be what, what was fulfilling to them as they waited for your promise. And Lord, I believe that that maybe is a lot of it, that we find ourselves to find you to be the fulfilling one to us, not the promise itself, not what we're waiting on. And so may all of us find you to be satisfying as we wait. And in doing that, may our hearts and our minds grow with excitement and glee and joy as we wait and we learn from you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.